thank you all. Uh, it's good to be here. And oh boy, what a lovely way to start the morning, Mr. Stillness and um, centering. I wish you could start every meeting and talk like that. Um, so uh, I've been asked to reflect really, really on poetry and prayer and meditation and how those are woven together. And uh, I'm going to draw on uh, some poems from my most recent book, Parable and Paradox, uh, which contains, among other things, a, a cycle of 50 sonnets on the sayings of Jesus. And I was born to write these really because I just felt the, almost the problem or the question of the familiarity or over-familiarity. One sort of thinks, oh, I know the kind of thing that's in the Gospel and I know the kind of thing that Jesus says. And you hear familiar words or you say the Lord's Prayer and it just kind of washes over you. Um, I had been working on a book uh, uh, about the great poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and um, Coleridge uh, has a beautiful thing about poetry where he says that one of the things that poetry can and should do is to awaken the mind's attention to the richness and the wonder in front of it and to remove what, and these are Coleridge's words, to remove the film of familiarity which our selfishness and solicitude has cast like a kind of pall over the world. Um, so uh, it seemed to me that if poetry could awaken the mind's attention to the extraordinary mystery of the world itself, that the God itself has made, then it might also do that for some of the over-familiar words, that the film of familiarity could be removed. So that's what I endeavoured to do in, in the book, uh, Parable and Paradox. So um, for the poems that I want to look at today, which might restore to us or return to us a sense of coming to a brink and entering into the mystery of, God, of Jesus' teaching, um, I thought I would look uh, in, in John's Gospel and particularly to look at the sequence of sayings which uh, biblical scholars refer to as the I am sayings. There are seven so-called I am sayings um, where Jesus startlingly, we need to be startled again, he doesn't say, um, oh, I might remind you of, or you know, I'm vaguely analogous to bread. <laughs> he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the way. Extraordinary, powerful thing. But, so they're called the I Am Saints, and there are seven of them. And they're parallel in John's Gospel by another group of seven, which are where he has, says, I am, but he doesn't add anything else. He just says, as we'll see in one we're looking at the moment, before Abraham was, I am. The woman at the well says, when Messiah comes, he will explain it. He goes, I am he. Now, the reason why that I am is so significant and it's not just like I'm vaguely like is uh, there's a clue for us in the Greek in the, in, when these seven sayings I am the bread and so on and the other seven uh, occur um, the clue in the Greek is that in the Greek it, it says it's the Greek of John's gospel it says ego amy now, it's sort of to cut to the chase, Greek being an inflected language, it's a bit like Latin, you can say, you don't have to add I am. If you say ego, it means 
I am. You know, but you can emphasize, but if you go ego, Amy, it means a bit more. Now, the really startling thing, and this is really so startling that one has to get one's mind around it, is that um, that particular way of saying I am, almost in capital letters, ego, Amy, has an echo back into the Old Testament. You may know that the, the, the words of the Old Testament, the great the, the law and the prophets, had itself been translated into Greek, um, so that the Jews in the diaspora, who didn't necessarily have Hebrew as their first language, could read the scripture in the translation, although they might then say Hebrew phrases as well. And of course, when we look back into the Old Testament, I am specially emphasized in capital letters, has a huge resonance. And it has a huge resonance because of that moment when Moses is tending to the sheep of his father-in-law and he sees the burning bush. He turns aside, as um, the poet Horace Thomas says, to the lid bush and he steps forward. And the voice says to him, Moses, Moses, take off thy shoes from off thy feet. The place where thou art standing is holy ground. And he does so and he stands there. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, the God of your fathers. This great promise you'll not abandon. I have seen the suffering of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries. I will come down. And he's sent to Pharaoh. It's a completely transformative moment for his life. Not only for his life, but for the whole of his people and indeed for the course of human history. It all starts with this. And God at that stage, speaking to him directly from the burning bush, simply says, um, I'm the God of your ancestors. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which is a bit of a circumlocution. I'm not, you know, I'm the one they worshipped. Not saying a name. So in those days, of course, name and nature go together. You know, to know the name, a sacred name, you know, it's a very big step forward in spiritual life should a divinity disclose the name by which they're known. Because, of course, to speak the name is to summon, to have a kind of reciprocal power. So, so, so you have to be very wary of giving your name in that, in that mystical and magical world, and you have to be very wary of, of, of letting your name be known. So Moses does a classic thing, you may remember, in that story. He says, supposing, he says to this God who's disclosed himself, supposing when I go to uh, the children of Israel and say, the God of your ancestors, has told me to, to, to come and, and, and tell Sarah, Pharaoh to set you free and we must all rise up and leave Egypt. Supposing when I say that to them, they were to say to me, what is the name of the God who said this to you? What would I say to them? Talk about a polite way. This is a, it's not for me, you understand. I, I don't need to, it's just my friend. My friend over the here needs to know. Do you mind? It's a wonderful, you know. So, uh, then comes this, this absolutely open foundational moment when God replies from the bush. And if you read it in you know, the various translations we have, it'll say something like, tell the children of Israel that I am has called you. God names himself, I am. And some scholars think that the letters mean, I am that I am. I am what I will be. I am and I am to be. There's some profound mystery of conscious being here. I am. And the I am in the text is written with four letters, which came later to be known as the Tetragrammaton, the four letters. And this name, I am, 
was felt to be so holy that you couldn't say it. And so people would say Adonai instead. They'd say Lord. And they wrote, the, often in the scripts, it's the, the, the letters that make for Adonai are written above it. Later, later translators got the original letters of the I Am and the extra letters of Adonai sort of muddled together and came up with the word Jehovah. <laughs> that that's what they thought that meant. Subsequent scholars have said, well, actually, and I can say the name, I mean, it's, you know, once one would have that it probably was Yahweh. But Yahweh in its deepest means I am. And that became, in the Greek translation known as the Septuagint, Ego Amy. Now, if you're not sure how resonant that was and what that meant, obviously Jesus wasn't speaking Greek, he was speaking under Aramaic. So we, what did he say? Well, perhaps the key moment is when he says in John 8 to the Pharisees, Abraham asked to see my day. He rejoiced to see my day. He was glad. And they say to him, you're not yet 50 years old, you know, uh, which is obviously a sin in itself, you know, not yet to be august middle-aged. You're not yet 50 years old, and do you say that you have seen Abraham? And Jesus replies, before Abraham was, I am. John goes on to tell us, and they picked up stones to kill him. It's actually the first death threat to Jesus. It's not actually, and he disappears. He just walks through the crowd. He just walks through them. Before Abraham was, I am. Now Jesus was not making an elemental mistake in grammar and tenses here. He was saying, I am Yahweh. The one who stands before you is that one who is in the burning bush. Is the overflowing fullness and pleroma of God the one from whom the whole world unfolds. Now, I am is a remarkable name for God, for the fountain of all things. I am. Not it is. Years later, commenting on the philosophy of Spinoza, the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, in the end, we have to choose what is the primal statement, the one first axiom, a statement of axiom from which we do all our thinking. And he says he thinks the choice is between whether we think the world begins with the statement, it is, stuff just is, physical objects are around, and then after lots of profound thinking, maybe we can figure out a way to get from all these it isnesses, all these bouncing atoms, eventually we'll kind of come up with some notion of I amness. We might be able to derive Consciousness, that's what I am means, I am conscious. We might be able to derive consciousness and personhood from matter if we keep trying. And Coleridge looked at it and said, do you know, we can't do that. You can never get to the fullness of I am from all the immense heap of little things going, it is. So maybe it'd be better to start with a foundational statement, I am, to say consciousness and amness is first, being a person is first. And then we'll figure out how we got to all the bits and pieces floating around. And essentially, of course, Coleridge then came to say, that's actually what the scripture is telling us. That in the beginning is the I amness of God in the beginning. And that I amness says, let it be. I am delightedly says it is. And it is only in itself if it's ever looked at and breathed into being and regarded by an I am. And then let us make man in our own image. And what is that image? We are also I am's. We live in a, among a world of it is, don't we? But actually, we're I am's. 
and her power, gift of being able to say, I am. You're him, children. My little I amness is the image of his great I amness. And whenever, when I meet him, when he comes towards me, when he rises from somewhere within me, you know, he's the fountain still of my being, my own I amness. Then between the two of us, we can behold his his. And we can say, it's good. It's very good. And he can go further and say, do you know, every one of these things that I've made, every aspect of it that you see with your I amness, and I see with my I amness, speaks to you of me. And one day that I am comes into the world as a person and says, before Abraham was, I am. And then he particularly chooses of the myriad beautiful things that are, certain of them, light, a door, bread, wine, a shepherd, and shows the fullness of his I amness through one of those things and transforms it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it's just um, just to reflect that I am is, is there's, a, there's, there's a great sort of um, mystery in the very terms. So shortly we're going to look at, at the, those seven I am sayings. And here I have to say I am very uh, grateful indeed to Linda um, who not only read, led the meditation for us but um, Happily, as, as we live in the same village, and I've shown her some of these poems, Linda is a very, very good artist, and um, uh, you may have seen some of her paintings. And once before, uh, we did a thing together with poetry and painting, because I had a, a sonnet that she did, she did um, four paintings for. So I kind of casually said, oh, you know, I'm going to do this thing about seven I am sayings, um, you know, just to let her know. And she said, oh, do you like some paintings? And I'm going, well, it's quite soon. No problem. So Linda went away and meditated on these poems and um, produced a very beautiful creative response. So when we get to those particular seven I am saying, um, she's brought all the paintings here, we wheeled them to King, you know, from King's Cross. So you will see the physical paintings, but she's also going to put the images on there. And I'm going to read the poem and say something about it. I'm going to hand over to Linda, who will explain where the image came from and how that came about. And then I'm going to reflect a little on the words and image, what they mean with each other, and then wrap it up with the poem again. And I hope somewhere in those there'll be something that opens things out, that removes the film of familiarity, that restores to you the, the I am personal presence of Jesus in and through these images, personally present to you and in you and through you to others. Um, and don't worry if, if you kind of think, oh, I was still waiting with that one and you've gone on to the next one. You know, you've got the poems. Um, you'll, you'll retain the memory of the images. You know, uh, there'll be a chance uh, beyond this day to draw on these things. Um, so before we go to the actual specific um, seven I am's, which interestingly in John's Gospel, I've, I'm going to do them in the exact order they are in John. And it's only when I was working on these poems myself, I noticed the first one is bread in that cycle of seven. The last one is the vine that all of that beautiful personal gift of himself that's present to us is held between the bread and the wine, is as it were held within that sacrament of communion. I think John's is the most sacramental gospel, and yet it's the one that doesn't actually describe the words of institution of the Last Supper. Instead of showing you the outward and visible thing, John gives you entirely the inward and spiritual truth of it in what he says about bread. Of course, the first miracle in John, the sign as he calls it, 
the water at all. But the first is spread of the ions, the last is the mind. But let me begin by reading you um, my sonnet on Before Abraham Was, I Am, which touches a little on that sense of the consciousness of which I spoke, in which I address God by that name, I Am. O pure I Am, the source of everything, the wellspring of my inner consciousness, the song within the songs I find to sing, the bliss of being, and the crown of bliss. You iterate and indwell all the instants wherein I wake and wonder that I am, as every moment of my own existence runs over from the fountain of your name. I turn with Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, with everyone whom you have called to be, I turn with all the fallen race of Adam, to hear you calling, calling, come to me. With them I come, all weary and oppressed, and lay my labors at your feet and rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. <laughs> and I will refresh you. I believe that every time we turn to, China, to, to Christ, where as it were, suddenly for a moment, as we stand in the stream of time, in the stream of our being, seeing nothing as we look down, but our own shadows on the water and pollutions from our own body washed off. When we, turn, when we come to Christ, we turn around for a minute. We look upstream to the very source of our being, the source of our ailments, and we receive it. Again, the gift of our own ailments fresh, pristine from his hands, just welling up. And that's why he says, come to me when your neighbour and your heavy legs, just come and let me well up in you again. All the time he's saying that, like he does to the woman at the well, you know, where she's, she can see nothing but difficulties, you know, the well's too deep and the buckets are the wrong type and you're a man and I'm a woman and there's all these issues, you know, and he's going, if only you knew, if only you knew who was asking you, you would ask him. He would give you a fountain welling up. I think his I amness inside and giving us our I amness is that fountain. So whatever else is happening this morning, in fact the whole day, hear him say, come to me, come to me. Uh, come and just be. Enjoy your I amness as the gift that wells from my I amness. And just let it be for good. So, Having said that, um, let's turn to the I am sayings, and in the rest of the little time that we've got um, uh, for this first part, uh, first talk, I want to look at the two, the first two of them, I am the bread and I am the light. So Linda's got her paintings here, can we, can we get the, the um, we might also project them there. Uh, uh, Kate is kindly coming as well, so she's going to be uh, easel. Um, what we might do is just, uh, let's, shall I just read the poem first? And then we'll look at the, the perhaps I'll read the poem before we do anything else, before you, you project. So, in every one of these poems, in the parable and paradox, I give the saying of Jesus on which I've meditated. 
So, so if we just ignore what's going on there for a minute and just come to the present. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And you may remember in John 6, the whole chapter goes on and on and about bread. And the, there's this crowd following him around. And they're in the wilderness. And the crowd are weary and the people um, exhausted. I am the bread of life. Where to get bread? An ever-pressing question that trembles on the lips of anxious mothers. Bread for their families. Bread for all these others, a whole world on the margin of exhaustion. And where that hunger has been satisfied, where to get bread? The question still returns. In our abundance, something starves and yearns. We crave fulfillment, crave and are denied. And then comes one who speaks into our needs, who opens out the secret hopes we cherish, whose presence calls our hidden hearts to flourish, whose words unfold in us like living seeds. Come to me, broken, hungry, incomplete. I am the bread of life. Break me. So in the poem I was trying to, to, to move from and through that first sheer physical desire and the need, which is really important in itself, but it's very important that hungry people should be fed. Um, and it's that notice that when that is satisfying, is satisfied, when that craving is satisfied, this deeper yearning comes. And then finally this extraordinary thing that he did with the breaking of the bread. But that wilderness can be many places, wherever it was when John first recorded it. There are many places where broken, hungry, incomplete, in one form or another, of stage and need on pilgrimage, we cry out for bread and for that bread of life. Many places where he meets us. So one of the fascinating things for me ever in reading poems or getting letters from readers of poems is to find how the poem finds its own location and generates its own place within the reader, which is what it's meant to do. So that's partly been my experience, among other things, with Linda. That, you know, she takes the poem away and then she kind of comes back and it's a very sort of particular location and she's drawn other things out of it. So in each of these cases, after I've read the poem, I'm going to ask Linda to talk a little bit about the picture. Should we get... I'll hold the picture while you, while you um, talk about it, but it's okay. Um, yeah, well, 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 why don't we, yes, if you hold it, then you hold, can look at it as well and comment on it as well. So, I, I love, I know you've got it projected there, but I think seeing the physical object is really important as well. So when I was um, pondering this, of course, the image that first of all came into my mind was the image of refugees. The people on the brink of starvation and where to get bread for your children. But I think we're saturated with those images at the moment, and you kind of become hardened to certain ideas and images. And, I, and, and so I often just let my mind go and let it wander and see what images come to me. And I found this one. It was a black and white photograph from the First World War. I found this one as I was Googling it. 
so it's, it's, it's a bit colour saturated on here. But I thought if Jesus doesn't come to us in our battlefields, not just at the communion rail or when we're peacefully meditating, but Jesus must be able to come to us in the horrors of our lives and we don't see it. And this fellow here, this one here, he made a great impression on me actually and he appears in another painting. And it's very, it was very interesting as I was painting this, this man has probably been dead for years and here I am meditating on him and in my search for God, in my, in my reaching out for, in my longing for God, in my own longing for bread, here I am bringing this dead soldier back to life. Um, there, and there's, there's a, a reference to Trinity here as well. There are three sticks, you'll see it better in the painting. So I'm going to leave it there. So uh, it was very interesting for me to, to see this. And, you know, it certainly places this question of God's provision for us and gives us, you know, in, in the most problematic place. Because although this is a place of terrible suffering and also, I'm sure, individually of heroic courage on the part of the individual soldiers, it's also that war, that whole First World War, just a terrible tragedy and a terrible waste and and, you know, represents a failure of politics and a failure of diplomacy. It's not, you know, it wasn't a cut and dried, you know, there were Christians on both sides of that war. There, there, there were, you know, um, Rudyard Kipling, who had been so um, gung-ho earlier on in the, in the 1890s, when his own son was taken up into that war, had a real crisis in which he saw that he had misplaced his faith in the British political establishment and in the powers that be in Europe. He needed to centre it much more deeply in God, you know. He wrote that dreadful, you know, chilling epitaph for all the, all the soldiers who died on both sides. If any question why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. And he made it even clearer in his epitaph for a dead statesman, for a dead politician. I would not serve, I dared not rob, and so I lied to please the mob. Now all my lies are proved untrue, and I must face the men I slew. What lies will serve me here among mine angry and defrauded young? So there's all that questioning. And one says, should one, you know, should chaplains have been there? You know, was the church, you know, somehow sanctifying a carnage that should never have taken place? And there are real questions to ask about that. And yet, yet, one cannot help but feel that in that place of extremity and suffering, the God who came to extremity and suffering himself and stretched out his arms on the cross must come and find us. And indeed, to quote Kipling again, that's the most unfashionable poet you could possibly quote. That's why I like to do it. Um, you know, he has that extraordinary poem for a young soldier where he says, A garden called Gethsemane, in Picardy it was. And there we stayed and paused a while before we met the gas. And then he goes on to say, I prayed my cup, I prayed my cup, I, pray, I prayed my cup would pass from me. You know, that morning was down by Gethsemane, and then the poem finishes, you know. 
It did not pass. It did not pass. It did not pass from me. I drank it when we met the gas beyond Gethsemane. An extraordinary we met. That sense that Christ is in that soldier. And that's why the other thing I find very powerful about this particular painting, after I'd recovered from the surprise of the setting, which, yeah, and then I went, wait, no, this is right, is that these soldiers are receiving comfort, whatever they're going through. They're kneeling to receive. And the, the chaplain is able to do it, and here is Christ being given. But this soldier, he's behind. He's separated from the man. He's holding his head. He's in that paralyzing and dark agony of sheer terror or sheer depression. He can't even get himself round to receive. He is not receiving. He is simply suffering. And yet that is the Christ-like position. Christ says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And yet he, 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 he's crushed. He's brought to the time of trial. He goes into the darkness of Gethsemane precisely so that the rest of us in the garden can get away. He faces it for us. And in that sense, I think in his agony, he takes on the agony of each person, but particularly the agony of the person who can't even get to communion. So for me, there's a paradox. He is richly present in the bread, and if we have enough faith and a call to receive it, we should receive it gladly and let, and let, let that be Christ to us. But he's there as well. He's inside the guy that can't even get himself to the line communion. And I just felt that both of those were there, so I found that, that very moving. Thanks for being there. So, um, but you might like to meditate uh, for a moment, supposing you were Linda for a second, you were about to do a painting as well. Um, how many other places we might meet Christ in this way and have this, this communion? When I was first ordained as a parish priest, I then had this extraordinary privilege of taking communion to people's houses either taking the reserved sacrament or celebrating communion in the houses of people who were unwell or indeed who were dying. And that became astonishing to me. Communion became much realer to me when I was doing it, as it were, away from the traditional altar rail um, in in these other places and scenarios. So um, he starts with bread. That's John 6. And the whole of John 6 is a long meditation on what that bread is. But perhaps we'll move on now um, to uh, the light, which I just particularly love. I'll do the poem perhaps first, and then we'll put the new picture up. So, yeah, should we turn that off for a sec? Um, I think it might be helpful to just let the poem be with you first, and then we'll... Um, Jesus, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am, ego Amy, that big I am. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, when you read that in John 8, and you get light, phos, and life, Zoe, together again, you have to suddenly find that the, the prologue to John's Gospel comes alive in your mind again. In fact, physically in the Gospel, it has to be some pages, you know, um, at the beginning, and then you turn the page of the Gospel and you finally get to chapter 8. But actually, I think um, one should see that whole prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with Him. All things were made through Him. 
without, you know, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never overcome it. All that down, basically John 1, 1 to 14, down to the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Instead of being written like as a prologue at the beginning, it ought to be watermarked into every page of John's Gospel. It ought to be actually in, so that everything is read through the preface, or the preface underlays everything. Or you know, every when you're puzzling over this, you should suddenly see in kind of beautiful, kind of subtly luminous letters underneath the black and white ink. Those great words, "I am the life, I am the life." That's, you read it all the way, always through that. Um, so, um, I am the light of the world. I see your world in light that shines behind me, lit by a sun whose rays I cannot see. The smallest gleam of light still seems to find me, or find the child who's hiding deep inside me. I see your light reflected in the water, or kindled in someone's eyes. It shimmers through translucent leaves in summer, or spills from silver veins in leaden skies. It gathers in the candles at our vespers. It concentrates in tiny drops of dew. At times, it sings for joy. At times, it whispers, but all the time it calls me back to you. I follow you upstream through this dark night, my saviour, source and spring, my life and light. I've always had that sense of light speaking about something, calling me, drawing me as it were up its beam. Um, I wrote a poem in, in, in my first volume, Turning the Seasons, on the beautiful O, o Advent Antiphon, O Orient, O Day Spring from on High, um, in which I say that a really green gleam of light is a beckoning, a calling. So I wanted to convey that sense, but I also wanted to convey the sense, which is very important for understanding the incarnation, that we actually don't see light as light. Even when we think of a ray of light, you know, like a yellow ray of light or a gold, what we're seeing is light shining on something. We're seeing the air or the water or the green leaves that it shines through. We're seeing what we become aware of the goodness of light instantaneously at the moment when the goodness of, of light is making us aware of the goodness of something else. It's when light is shining on something that we become aware that it's not light at all. So that's why I list all these good and beautiful things kindled in someone's eyes, the translucent leaves in summer, the silver veins, the leaden skies, the candles, the dew. And I was kind of informed in this by a very beautiful saying of, of C.S. Lewis's about his faith, in which he said, I believe in Christianity in the same way that I believe that the sun rises, not simply that I see it, but that by its light I see everything else that there's something about the light of Christ which is not constantly, selfishly speaking of itself, but is necessarily shining on everything else, is blessing everything else. That God makes the light, but he makes it you know, in the, he says, let there be light, and there was light. But it is not sufficient for him that the light should just be 
self-referential light. It's actually light which becomes what it is in the very act of letting something else or someone else be what they're. And of course, that's in the very nature of God as Trinity. You know, whenever you, whenever you see the Son, you see Jesus, he's never saying, well, look at me, I'm Christ. Uh, he's like, the Father, have you seen the Father? Give glory to my Father, look up at my Father. So, you know, I want to, and then so you go, great, thanks, I'll, thanks for the tip, you know, I'll go to the Father. And they say, hello, Father, and he goes, have you seen my son? It's fantastic, you know, but my beloved, this is my beloved in whom I delight. Each person is giving the gift of being and worth and honor to the other, and that's what it is to be a person. We actually only become persons by the gift of somebody else. You know, by our parents having met and having made love and our mother having carried us and uh, having been everything we received from another. The idea that we, we were self-instantiating, it's, it's ridiculous. So we just, and then we, in the same moment of having received, give others, I give to my parents, give to me the gift of my being. I give to them the gift of parenthood by being their offspring and it's a mutual thing. Um, so I wanted that sense of the light shining on the other. And I just instanced, and I, as because I'm somebody who I'm quite affected by the seasons, and you know I get quite depressed in the winter, and I, I, I need light, particularly the image of light reflected on water. It sort of you know it becomes almost like food. I, I have to have it, or I'm in big trouble. Um, but uh, I also need the light sometimes to shine from an odd place or from behind and to take me by surprise and have a bit of light. And as always, Linda's painting. It just out for me, you know, it kind of leapt out and took me by surprise again. So do you want to put that one up and, and get that painting out? That's, should we get the painting itself? So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the light that shines behind me. And, um, and the child who's hiding deep inside me. When I was a child, when I was very young, I had an experience that was very strange. I woke up in the middle of the night and went and sat by the storage heater in the bedroom I shared with my sister. And I was sitting by this teeny-weeny little light, red light, that said the storage heater was on. And it was the only light in the bedroom. And I had the most incredible sensation of being held, of being loved, that the world was a good place, that God, whoever... I didn't think of it in God terms. I just felt this incredible sense of this overwhelming sense of goodness and love. So I realize I'm standing right in front of this very bright light. And I think there is something about being a child that we lose as we grow older. The child has an infinitely wonderful capacity to pay attention, to be present. <coughs> that a child is not referring to a lot of things as we do as we get older. 
But that child is there holding a bunch of bluebells, and that child is with the bluebells, not thinking, oh, doesn't that light look nice behind me? Don't I look pretty sitting in this veil of bluebells? And so this I am the light, and the light is in me, and I am the beloved child of the Father. I come from the light, and I'm returning to the light. And this is this is where I felt this is where I felt this was this was where this was taking me in this painting. Thank you. Uh, yeah, again, I, I found this um, very moving. Uh, I have to like wood, woods and woodlands, and obviously, I'd, 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 she's got that sense which I had in the poem, <coughs> like <coughs> glimmering through leaves. But then, these streaks of light along the bluebell wood, I mean, and I, I happen to love bluebell woods myself, suddenly brought to my mind, when I looked at this painting, a beautiful phrase of um, C.S. Lewis in his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. Obviously, I felt it was a book I ought to read at some point. <laughs> um, so, um, in that, he's talking about the way, he's using the image of the woodland, as Dante uses it about, you know, nel mestro di camino di nostra vita, in the middle of the wood of this wood life, about getting a bit lost in woods and strays. And then Lewis has this phrase, he says, but every so often where this canopy has been stirred, these patches of light come down, which will light a us. And he calls them patches of God light falling into our lives, as it were, through, through the woods, these patches of God light. So I just thought, wow, you know, this just is exactly an illustration of that, because the path is there, and yet she's off the purpose. So that was very beautiful. And the child, obviously that was there in the poem as well, well, um, calls the child who's hiding deep inside me. I'm partly, of course, thinking of Wordsworth's um, The Child as Father of the Man, that we carry that. I do believe that we have <laughs> we're all, as it were, natural mystics. I mean, I, I do think children have profoundly, uh, profound experiences of the direct light and beauty of reality radiating through all things. And then we don't quite beat it out of them, but we certainly pour a lot of sort of sludgely kind of concrete over it at various points, and um, it has to break through again. Coleridge, Wordsworth friend, uh, ha had a beautiful uh, line about this where he said, a poet is a person who brings the vision of the child into the powers of the adult. That, that the adult, at last, honors the child inside himself by giving expression to what the child needed to say but couldn't say at the time, in such a way that the clarity of the child's vision is restored not only for the poets they write, but for their reader. So again, I thought this was both a beautiful exterior picture and an interior picture. And um, so the little girl in, 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 in the woods becomes, I think, a, a really quite strong soul emblem. Uh, so I was very glad, glad to see that. I'm all the more glad to see it now, actually, with a bit of light literally shining through the canvas there. Um, that's particularly moving. So um, if you want to put that down here. So as you can see, it's quite an exciting adventure for me to um, to find these poems, as it were, becoming 
generative of something else in Linda. And I want to say, um, just remaining on this first session, that, that I think that's a very important aspect of how poetry itself works. Um, a poem, obviously, I've given you the, these sheets of paper, and we could do a disc, you know, we could do a chemical analysis of the paper, and we could do a geometrical analysis of the shape of the letters, and we could know a great deal that was true, but we'd never grasp it. It's, a poem. it's not a poem there. It only becomes a poem when it's uttered or read, when it's spoken into the air or read by your mind. So, okay, I had to do something in order to get it onto the paper, that's true. There was a creative or, or a, an imaginative um, piece of human shaping and making and pouring out of and discerning of meaning in my making and shaping it. But all of that, as it were, went down into the paper and stays there inert. So in so far as it's now become, either of these poems have become a poem, and I'm going to read them again to you in a minute, they've become a poem by your active, generous, generative, imaginative response to my words. And in fact, when I say the smallest gleam of light still seems to find me or finds the child who's hi hiding deep inside me, or I say, I see your light reflected in the water, or kindled suddenly in someone's eyes. It's got to be reflected in the end in a water you've seen. If I say I see your light reflected in the water and you read it, you hear the words, I see your light reflected in the water, then somehow rising from some depth somewhere in your memory are the hints and glints of a river that you stood by or a stretch of water on which you see light. And perhaps when I say kindled, kindled suddenly in somebody in someone's eyes, you are remembering a particular person and a particular glint and a particular look. The light in somebody else's eyes that restored the light in your own when it seemed to be failing. It's there. And if I speak of the child, then, you know, it has to be yours. Things, the candles that are Vespers, they're your Vespers, not just my Vespers. So you are actively making and shaping, imaginatively, what makes this poem a poem. And now that always amazes me when people say, I'm not a poet, but I love reading poetry, right? Well, if you love reading poetry, you are a poet. You actually have to be a poet in order to read a poem at all. Because the job is only half done. By, it's, like, it's like buying one of those part-baked rolls, you know, in the, in the supermarket, you know. You actually have to take it out and put it in the oven and complete it. It's not done. It doesn't rise, you know. It's not doing its thing. So you actually have to, have to do that. And the art of the poet in making the poem is to write in such a way that it doesn't close down but opens up. It doesn't mean the poem can't be specific, but even the specifics have to be your specifics in the end. Did you see that? Does that make sense? Now, Cobbridge, who, who, who um, thought a lot about how poetry works, and I'm um, sorry I keep quoting him because it's been on my mind of late, um, actually came to feel that one of the problems with the rise of extreme sort of reductive material rationalism in the 18th century and 19th century that he was living through was that it was misunderstanding the cosmos. Not that the minute observations and exact measurements of the new science were in any sense wrong or inaccurate, but that it was like doing the chemical analysis of the paper and only measuring the letters. 
And he wrote a very powerful and beautiful poem, that I'm sure many of you know, Frost at Midnight, when he was thinking about the education of his own child and how this child would grow up and what they would learn about shape and beauty and meaning. And he imagines his child going off, as this child does, you know, into the woods or by the lakes and sandy shores and beneath the crags of mountains. And he sees his, in his mind's eye this little boy going off and doing that. But thou, my child, shalt wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores. And then he says this. So shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters, who doth teach himself in all things and all things in himself. Great <coughs> universal teacher, he shall mould thy spirit and by giving Make it last. And Wordsworth is sometimes accused by, you know, uptight theologians of pantheism. Um, but that's not pantheistic at all. He's not saying those things are God. He's saying they're God's poem, they're God's language. And in through those images, he teaches who he is. And he, the person of God himself, awakens the person in you. And by giving you these beautiful images, makes you ask through them and from them and for them for more. Yeah? Coleridge began to realize that actually we were simply failing to imaginatively read God's poem. That the cosmos was not just a piece of text to be analyzed, but was an utterance. He was speaking it. And of course this drew Coleridge back again and again to John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. When Coleridge, somebody, uh, I, I've looked at Coleridge's copy of the Book of Common Prayer, um, and uh, it's got these annotations down the side. And at the beginning of the, you know, the book communion service, he says, the best for me, the only preparation to receive this mystery, is to read the Gospel of John on my knees. You know, <laughs> extraordinary. That, that's that, that something about the word, that preface, that prologue. These are being, were being uttered. So in the end, in his book Biographia, when he comes to define the imagination, he doesn't say the imagination is, is a way we make up little twiddly stuff on our own over here. He says this, he says, the primary imagination, I believe, to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception. And this is the bit, and he said, and to be a repetition in the finite mind, a repetition in the finite mind, of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. He often calls just God the infinite I am or the adorable I am. So what he's saying there, this is very radical, he's saying that when you go out and see the light reflected on the water, or you take a loaf of bread or you see a vine, not only is God speaking a word to you, but God is inviting you as you imaginatively perceive his vine that he's just made, or imaginatively perceive. He's inviting you almost to an act of co-creation. Just like I, as a poet, to compare this mind with the ridiculous, um, have invited you, when I wrote that poem, and I talked about the light that's kindled suddenly in someone's eyes, I was inviting you, by imagination, to make with me, simultaneously, the poem in its meaning. 
And it doesn't have its meaning. It isn't a poem, actually, until you make it with me. My half of it is not complete. Do you see that? The poem then becomes, as it were, it has a existence. It's a sound in the air and stuff. But it's a kind of veil that trembles between the loving and exchange and being of two persons. The maker and receiver actively communicating meaning, as it were, through the veil of the... Does that make sense? Yes. So, never say you're not a poet if you don't write it. You know, you're writing whenever you read it, actually. And um, so it's always moving to me when I hear somebody else, or see in this case, in another medium, somebody else completely reshaping and making what's actually there. But there's a great deal that's there, which is concealed from me. Because I can only do my bit of it, because it was there in my mind. But my mind does not exhaust the possibility of what is genuinely there. That it's genuinely generated. Um, so that's um, the way I want to understand these poems. But I also think that this is an invitation from Jesus to see him and to meet him in particularly these seven things that he's asked us. He's, it's kind of almost like the poet has popped into the inside of the poem which we have and said, do you mind if I just underline a few words in this poem? I particularly like you to dwell on these ones. That light thing I did, it's got a lot going for it, just, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, what I'd like to do now... Would, Two poems again um, before we close this part of the break. But just before I do that, would any of you like to come back to me on any of the essentially three things we've done here today so far? I've talked about that and the meaning of the name and the I amness. And then we've looked at the two things, bread and light. Anybody want to come back on those? Yeah? But it is interesting looking at, you're right, you know, the eyes are darkened throughout. Um, and that certainly expresses something of where they are in there.
Yeah. I'm almost feeling fear. So then, when we're standing taking our bow, I, I speak to somebody in the groups and start to talk about what it did to me. And, you know, around its qualities, it's like she had no clue. So, <coughs> yeah. this whole thing, we have to reflect back to the creation. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. It's, 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 it's so yeah. essential because people have. No idea. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe, you know, sometimes, I mean, to do the dance, you can't, as the giver and doer of that, yourself be entirely concentrated on its meaning. You have to be concentrated on the clarity of the doing. And you have to let the meaning take care of itself. I sometimes do that with, with poetry. I mean, I, I sometimes the basis on which I, I write poetry at all, I feel that confident to do it, is really the conviction that all the words I use are older and wiser than I am. And that if I just bring them together and leave them in the room together long enough, they'll have something to say. And I, my business is to listen to that and try and order it. So sometimes I don't listen to that myself. This thing about, about the meaning is not yet complete until it's reflected back to the maker. I think if we take that theologically, that's a really important truth. When Theodos' beloved wife, Joan, died, and you know, in the midst of his grief, he, he wrote this episode, which is actually up on the, in the crematorium at Oxford. And I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it goes something like, Here lies the earth, the star, skies, roses, as they were held, reflected, and made in one of his creatures, in one version. The whole universe, it says, that when somebody dies, an entire version of the universe dies with them. And that one of the things he therefore believed about the resurrection, and God will be all in all, and the world will be full of the glory of God, that it, well, the cosmos won't be complete until every version of it is raised, and until we can finally communicate with each other the unique bits of it that each of us got and shaped in our own ways. It's an amazing thing to say about somebody that's their late rest. Here's sleeping in the air is a version of the universe, you know, that's kind of waiting. That's, um, I, I think if we believe that our God is, you know, we have to really watch and see by analogy what happens in the exchange within human creativeness for a clue of a little bit of what's going on in the design. Yeah, yeah. Some people did, and some people didn't. But yes, uh, he must have known that, and there must have been a sign. Of, uh, and yet, so at a human level, I'm sure you know he was fully human, fully divine. So the fully, you know, he knows that, and he knows that even, even most people aren't going to get it at all. And even the small group of people around him, who are with him all the time, the twelve, didn't get it. I mean, I find it actually quite comforting when I read the Gospels and they say, 
they didn't understand it at the time, or he didn't get it, you know, I think, well, at least I'm in good company, you know, it's like Peter and me, you know, completely famous. So, but, he, Jesus specifically says, you don't understand this when I'm saying to you now, but you will, to them, several times. And he says, the Holy Spirit will bring these things to your memory. So I think he knew that the words he had written would not be in vain. The words he had spoken, rather than in vain, but the words he spoke were coming into the world to be generative and bear seeds, and they didn't have to be understood straight away. That they always had, you know, my, the bit in Isaiah, I think it is, my word will not return to me fruitless, but will accomplish the thing that it's been given. That's not only about the creation, it's also about the sending of Jesus, my word will not return to me fruitless, but it's also about every word that Jesus speaks. And Jesus clearly understands the words of God as, as he reads them in scripture, as nourishing and generative, rather than as little digital bits and bites of information. So when he quotes, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds, he knows the word is a generative and nourishing thing, it's not. So in a sense it doesn't matter if people don't get it straight away. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he would have understood that, absolutely, and he's willing to take that risk. The, the Pharisees do indeed accuse him of heresy. When, when I first read, I came back to Christianity maybe about 12 years ago, and I was reading John, and when I first came to the I Am phrases, I was just so excited. Yeah. I just remember just skipping around the house. I, just, I just couldn't believe the joy, yeah. because it resonated yeah. with the Sanskrit Aham. Uh-huh, right, yeah. I am the first sound. And then when I read about someone called Abram, who went in and he thought, Abram. Abram, yeah. Again, you know, it's just brilliant, yeah. What you're saying, that the words. Yeah. They just can get there. They do hold the. They lead you. They do, yeah. I mean, his words are creative and generative rather than just, just as it were, packaging information. Somebody has a hand, hand up. Oh, yes, okay. Oh, I, I was trying to I'm very moved by the combination of C.S. Lewis that you just told us about, he and lies. Yeah. And, and what you say about innovation. I, I just want to work with grief and meaning. Yeah. And I just found something that's kind of poetry and grief. When somebody resembles and works through pain and losing someone, yeah. and almost like that landscape of who they are is reimagined, in my experience, and created. Um, and at the same time, that great loss of a chunk of who they are yeah. in, that, in that process of sharing and growing sort of becomes reimagined. Yeah. So there's a kind of sharing there, and I just sort of got very moved. Yeah. Oh, thank you, yeah. Yeah, that, poetry and grief is something I'm thinking about quite a lot at the moment, because having done a, a Lent anthology and an Advent one, my publishers actually asked me to make an anthology of poems rising out of grief and grieving and, and the commentary on each one. So I'm just working on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was very interested in the point that you made about, you know, creative and having the meaning, mm. because obviously in the theory of dance, you've got 
Well, I think there's a difference between creating meaning and reflecting on it. And I think when you're creating the meaning, you're also serving it, and it's, it's, it's doing something through you. I think a lot of the language that, that the, that whether you talk about language of inspiration or poetic, that you talk specifically about the language of the muse, or a dancer might talk about the wisdom of their own body, and about kind of understanding, that there is, there is a kind of receiving and passing on as well as, rather than just, so you're intently listening for what it is you're supposed to be doing and intently concentrating on the form of doing it. So you don't have the leisure, as it were, to come back to it and then do that, that creative perceiving. And that's one of the reasons why when you're writing, I don't know about other art forms, but I mean in, in poetry, I don't necessarily know if I've actually got a poem. I mean, if it's a keeper. For some days after it's written, there's no point in my rereading it the minute I've written it, because I'm absolutely fully alive just passed through me. So of course I get it in one way, but I'm getting what I hoped I would put into it. But I don't know if I did actually put it that into it until 10 days later when I take it out of the drawer and look at it again and see if any of that stuff is suggesting itself. You know? so, so you can't, you can't sort of tell. Anyway, it, the other thing of course is that the familiar thing, it's one of the great things about having well-remembered passages of the Bible is is that you come back to the same poem, which was generative last time, and it generates something new this time, which you didn't get last time. Somebody over here. I was just about to say, it doesn't have a life until it's Yeah, absolutely, I agree with you. I think it has to be sounded, breathed into the air. When I, my first book of poems about the, the Christian year is called Sounding the Seasons. And it was both the sense of sounding the death, but also sounding echoes of uttering, uttering for. So, um, schedule here that around we're going to have a, like a, a five minute stretch break. Let me just read you these two poems again, just so that we kind of seal and cap them. And then we'll take about five minutes and then we'll go into the, into the, the second of our talks when we're going to look at uh, the door, the shepherd and resurrection. So. I am the bread of life, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Where to get bread? An ever-pressing question that trembles on the lips of anxious mothers. Bread for their families. Bread for all these others, a whole world on the margin of exhaustion. Where that hunger has been satisfied, where to get bread? The question still returns. In our abundance, something starves and yearns. We crave for food, pray, and it is enough. And then comes one who speaks into our needs, who opens out the secret hopes we cherish, whose presence calls our hidden hearts to flourish, whose words unfold in us like living seeds come to me broken hungry incomplete I am the bread of life break me and eat and I am the last word then spake Jesus again unto them saying I am the light of the world 
He that followeth me shall not have the lust. I see your world in light that shines behind me, lit by a sun whose rays I cannot see. The smallest gleam of light still seems to find me, or find the child who's hiding deep inside me. I see your light reflected in the water, or kindled suddenly in someone's eyes. It shimmers through translucent leaves in summer or spills from silver veins in leaden skies. It gathers in the candles at our vespers. It concentrates in tiny drops of dew. At times, it sings for joy. At times, it whispers. But all the time, it calls me back to you. I follow you upstream through this dark night. My saviour, source and spring, my life and light. I think if we come back just now and okay. and settle again, thank you. Great, I think I'm back on. Right, folks, should we? Should we? Epitaph for his wife Joy. And just so you can hear the, the original. So, epitaph for Joy Day. Here, the whole world stars, water, air, and field and forest, as they were reflected in a single mind, like cast off clay, was left behind in ashes, yet with hopes that she, reborn from holy poverty in events and lands, hereafter may resume on her Easter day. Kind of laying down of a, of, a, of a world or of a universe, taking half of it again. Right, so, um, <clears throat> In the sequence of the seven, you read them chronologically, as it were, in John, having had the bread and the light, there are two ones that come quite close to each other, both related uh, in the same talk, almost the same discourse of Jesus. And it's in John chapter 10, when he's thinking about um, shepherds. The first is the I am the door of the sheepfold, and the next one is the I am the good shepherd. Um, so I'm going to start by just reading you the I am the door one. There's um, different translations. In some translations it says I am the gate of the sheepfold. Um, it's an extraordinary uh, saying. I think perhaps just before I read it, I'll just say one, one little thing from the country that I read that, that I found very helpful about this saying in John. You remember there's a whole description of shepherds and sheep and different flocks in it. And um, there's a bit earlier on where he talks about how the, the uh, I call my sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and they know, they know my voice, and I know my sheep by name. And they won't go to a stranger, they'll come to me. Do you remember that passage? Mm -hmm. So the commentators say that, and the subsequent I am the door of the sheepfold, I am the gate of the sheepfold, relate to a practice among you know, shepherds in the period of the time. 
there would be a common um, fold, as it were, a common um, pen for all the sheep, which was guarded and was in the city where everybody, you know, who lived in that community, their sheep were all herded in their possessions, and they were proper guards and everything, and it might be covered over. That was the town one. And at the beginning of the season, when you'd be taking your sheep out to graze, the young boys, usually young boys in the family of the shepherd with the shepherds, would go to this common pen where all the sheep were herded together and just, just call out their own sheep, and the sheep would just come out, in spite of the fact that they were all mingled up with other, but each follow their own shepherd out. And at first, you would bring the sheep back to that fold, because it was safe and secure. But there would come a point as the season wore on that you've used up the pastures near to where you live in the community, and you have to take the sheep further afield to get good grazing. And that's, of course, where the whole thing, then the sheep don't want to go, because they like, you know, so they don't want to go through that shadowed valley. So the shepherd leads, leads from the front, of course, in those countries and plays a little flute. So the sheep then go, yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, you're with me, you know, your rod and your staff comfort me, and they follow the shepherd. Yes. But in these further pastures, it's too far to bring the sheep back. So they're built for each, in the different fields, sheep folds, which were basically circular stone walls with a gap. No roof, but just raised up enough. And the shepherd would herd the sheep inside the circular enclosure. And then he would lie down across the gap, literally becoming the door, becoming the gate. And then when he says, my sheep come out through me and go in through me, literally the sheep, if a sheep was going to stray, it would literally have to step over the shepherd. You know, he would know. And equally, if any predator was coming, he would know. His body itself became the door. And I, I found that really helpful, not only in understanding the saying by directly, but in understanding in a very profound way that sense of Jesus in the gap. Okay. Then said Jesus again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Not one that's gently hinged or deftly hung. Not like the ones you claimed at Joseph's place. Not like the well-oiled opens that swung so easily for Pilate's practised place. Not like the ones that closed in Mary's face from house to house in bringing back the Not like the one and may assail that waits your bread in Jerusalem. Not one you may but one you have become, load-bearing, balancing, a weighted beam to bridge the gap, to bring us within reach of your high pasture, calling us by name. You lay your body down across the breach, yourself the door that opens it. I guess I had the sense writing that just because saying I have the door about it being a carpenter and Joseph and I, then I put all the other doors including as a gentle allusion to the veil and the temple which is finally torn in two from top to bottom as his crucifixion that's the dreadful one that no man may say but, um, and to turn from those then to the one I had unbridled and read about the pasture but then to think of the cross itself great heavy beam of the cross and somehow 
and all that. So I was hinting all of those things which put them out. And I waited with great interest to see what Britain would do with that, so no way could see what she was done with that. This is this isn't a very good photograph. I'm afraid they all look a bit like cartoons. They're very heavily saturated with colour. So when I'm looking at this um, this sonnet, what struck me was the beam, the weighted beam that waits in Jerusalem. And there were allusions to Mary's face. And you can't see it terribly clearly, but this, sometimes you may have noticed that uh, the cross isn't always represented as, a, as something that's a cross. Sometimes it's just a beam. And um, it's just something that gets put up on a stake. So in this painting, Jesus is carrying this very heavy beam and he's stumbled and fallen. And in this painting there are various people. Maybe these are homeless people. Maybe they're looking for bread. But they're sitting by a fire. And then there's the horrified people, the people who can't bear to look. And of course, there's this scoffing people, angry people. Let's just get on with this, shall we? And then, who's this? I don't know. I don't know who this is. It, maybe it's Mary, Mary Magdalene. Maybe it's you. Maybe you come to Jesus and say, well, what kind of a Messiah are you? I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were going to save us. Or perhaps you're saying, would you really do this because you love me so much? And he's saying, yes, I would. I will. I am the door. And I will be the beam. Carry the beam. But perhaps it's not touching your heart, and perhaps you're sitting by the fire and looking at it all from a distance. But wherever you are in that painting, even if you're angry, he will bridge the gap for all of, all of those people, and that's why he's there. And of course, the beam is pointing to the sun, because it was three in the afternoon, so there still would be some sun. And of course, the sun is the archetype of God. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I found lots. Again, it was a completely different scenario. You know, I just have had my mind full of pastures and woolly sheep. You know, <laughs> and then I'm suddenly taken, as it were, to the Via Dolorosa. So that was a juxtaposition I'd never even thought of for this saying. Although, of course, I was alluding to the cross. 
when I said a weighted beam and all of those. But I still, do you know what I mean, imaginatively in my mind, I was still looking at various doors and then saying, okay, I understand the beam of the cross. He's almost carrying, you know, a door has to carry the whole weight of the house and lift it up to create the gap. So that said, so for me it was really helpful that um, Linda had transposed my poem to this place. So that's the first thing I want to say is that context is part of meaning. And I am hinting at this, but she brings out a great deal of meaning that is actually there in the poem, simply by where she locates it. The other thing that struck me about this um, was the uh, city in the background, as you can see here, that's even more there. I, I thought there was something very beautifully kind of ambiguous about that. You could at first think, this is just a purely historical painting, these people are wearing the clothing and carrying the lanterns of the first century. So I could, for a minute, think that city was the flat roofs of that sort of, you know, this kind of flat roof dwelling of, you know, Jerusalem. But actually, the more I looked at it, the more I thought, that could be a modern city. That could easily just be a modern city. And so I tend to see it that way. I tend to see the, the way all times are equally present to God. This is happening now, and in the modern city it's happening. So I found that was the sort of second thing that helped me about this. And um, the final thing, you know, in a weird way, was actually one of the things I felt I had to almost, um, well, not negotiate, but puzzle through. Uh, it can be no accident, A, that there are seven I am sayings, and B, that they occur in the order that they do occur in John's Gospel. Nothing falls by accident in John's Gospel. It's so astonishingly crafted. So there must have been some sense in which John or his hearers perhaps already had this as a sequence of seven, or knew that it would be a sequence of seven. And therefore, I'm always asking myself, how do I get from the light to the door? You know, how do I get from the bread to the light? How do I get from the light to the door? Do you see what I mean? So I actually found, because one of my light images in the I am the light one was spills from silver veins in leaden skies which I wanted to talk about mute light or not quite, you know, those moments when a little light is enough, just the gleam is enough and the sky is leaden, but there is this kind of little bane or thread of light in the sky. And sometimes that's all you've got, but actually sometimes it's all you need. So I really just experienced that sky as a kind of living link with the previous poem and a sense that even though in one sense the sky is darker than the crucifixion, that light is there. And of course, as you see that, you suddenly see all the light everywhere else. And you see this fantastic light in the, the, the lantern that she's holding, and the light that lights both their faces, and he is the light that comes into the world. And there's something in the lantern as well about the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you think about the, the, the light of the sun is in some sense representing the, the, the Father and then there's the Son. There's actually a whole kind of Trinitarian thing going on in, in there. It's really, really beautiful. So, again, it was fascinating to me to have the thing given back in that way. Um, I like it. I mean, this is nice to see that. But Linda's right about the, um, the way this... If you look at the... I mean, these are all going to be here. If you look at this, it's darker. I've got much more my silver veins and leaden skies there. And the power of that light there is all the stronger for the sheer blackness and weight of the paint. And it was like for you, Linda. But, I mean... The opacity of paint, the fact that you're covering something and then covering it again and then covering it with another layer, that must be very much. 
kind of part of the meaning of the process. So, um, thanks. Should we put, put that one away? Okay. So, um, I the poem had turned, in a sense, into a kind of whole meditation on doors. I find the idea that um, he is a door immensely um, moving and inviting. There's a nice bit in, in um, one of G.K. Chesterton's essays where he's talking about children's capacity for wonder and imagination and how it sort of is more, the closer you are, as it were, to the sheer wonder, you know, the surprising birthday present of birth, the more this capacity to see the sheerly extraordinary about things. So in his example of this, G.K. Chesterton says, a child of seven is filled with wonder and excitement at being told that behind the green door there is a dragon. But a child of four is just as thrilled and excited to be told there is a green door. <laughs> you know, the green door doesn't need the dragon. The green door is enough. That there should be a green door is astonishing. You know, and wonderful to such a child. And I, I feel that very strongly, that in these things, God, Jesus restores to us the sheer wonder of the universe. I am the door. As soon as he says, I am the door, I realize, actually, I've got a thing about doors. I really like doors. I'm interested in them. I, I had that poster that was around, you know, when I was a student, of the doors of Dublin, you know. And I used to talk about Chapman having an open door uh, uh, policy. Uh, so my door was open. And I, when I was in the days of the band, you mentioned my band, I got a song, which was a bit of a theme song for a while, called, called Open Door. Um, And it had a verse which went like this. They say that love was a vagrant once, playing catch me if you can, hiding his body in a loaf of bread and his godhead deep in the mouth. Everybody thinks they've seen his face or heard his words before, but just when they tried to close him down, he turned into an open door. <laughs> and just that idea that they're closing the opening. And then you get that extraordinary thing in the Revelation of, of, of St. John, where he says, and I saw a door opened in heaven. Is there anything else about it? It's just like, I saw a door open in heaven. And um, that sense, I mean, you get it in, in obviously, in the number of books at the door into the wardrobe, or at the end of those when they're walking, where they just set up a door with nothing, but, you know, just a door. So uh, part of this was simply to say, there is something mysterious about doors. Altogether, secret garden, yeah, the door, you know, thresholds, you know, the, um, one of the most strange and beautiful poems in, in, in George Herbert's The Temple is called Superliminare, which means over the lintel, over the, over the limbness of the door, and it's about kind of going through, so. In that superliminary, when Herbert has the, you go through the door into the church, he says, God is more there than thou art. You'll never be as present in this place as he already is. And then he talks about taking your hands off the verse. It's about, 
you can begin to practice being present in the presence of this presence, which is always superabundantly more present than you are. You're the distracted one. You're the one that's half scattered all over the place. He's completely there. Then you walk through this door. So, now I want to um, go on to the next um, uh, poem. Uh, in one sense, connected in After all, I was writing about John 7 when I wrote, I am the door of the sheepfold. And when I came to John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd for the sheep. I thought I knew before I wrote this poem what was I was going to write the poem about. Um, but if you really knew what you were going to write the poem about, there'd be no point in writing it. It wouldn't be a poem. It's got to come back and surprise you. But I was slightly taken aback by this one. What I thought I was going to write about, I had this kind of meditation on the, uh, the 23rd Psalm and um, the Lord is my shepherd and that sense that David, if he wrote that psalm, wrote that somehow having been a shepherd boy himself, intuited that God would come as a shepherd and that he would be the shepherd who led us through the door of death, that he would lead us through the valley of the shadow and that we wouldn't fear because he would go ahead of us and that this was an astonishing thing for him to have thought of because it would involve God being human. God couldn't possibly die unless he became human and this would have been an unthinkable blasphemy to the generation of David, the Yahweh. You know, the Lord is high above the earth and the inhabitants of the earth are as grasshoppers to him. You know, how can you possibly? You can't even say his name, let alone imagine him as a mewling and puking infant, you know, let alone suffering the degradation and indignity of death. But somehow, the Lord is my shepherd says all of that. Says I'm going to trust him because he's walking ahead of me. I will not die alone. I will go through that. And my, I will know that the path has been pioneered and found and my shepherd goes ahead of me. So I was going to write this really comforting poem that might be useful at funerals, you know, that kind of thing. But for whatever reason, maybe we've been talking about living care, partial care crisis, you know, we were in the middle of some of these really... <coughs> pardon me, sort of stomach-churning and heart, heartbreaking revelations of the abuse of the pastoral staff, if you like, the shepherd's crook, of and of people who were meant to be the shepherds of the flock actually preying on them in the most appalling way. And um, I'd seen myself in various ways, tangentially, people in positions of trust just literally becoming predatory. And all the immense kind of complications of that in terms of what made them like that and things that, you know, just the sheer awfulness of it suddenly came through to me, and I think I'd not said a lot about it sort of publicly, and suddenly to my surprise, this poem became the scenario. Because of that word good, like I suddenly thought, I am the good shepherd, almost implies that boy are you going to have some bad ones. Do you know what I mean? And actually the very, like it was almost saying, like don't believe everybody that's calling themselves a shepherd is going to be, you know, let me just let you know, like now, what the good shepherd is and what the distinction is between the good shepherd and the bad shepherds and the shepherds who give their lives to the flock and the shepherds who prey on the flock and the, the I just suddenly felt this is cutting right to the heart of something and I kind of couldn't evade it anymore so that's 
how the poem came out the way it did. So, um, <clears throat> I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. When so much shepherding has gone so wrong, so many pastors hopelessly astray, the weak so often preyed on by the strong, so many bruised and broken on the way, the very name of shepherd seems besmeared. The fold and flock themselves are torn in half. The lambs we left to face all we have feared are caught between the wasters and the wolf. Good shepherd, now your flock has need of you. One finds the fold and ninety-nine are lost out in the darkness and the icy dew and no one knows how long this night will last. Restore us. Call us back to you by name, and by your life laid down, redeem our shame. So, the poem really just became a kind of cry of pain and of shame. I remember at its worst when the almost daily revelations of priests of using children. I was, you know, cycling in the Cambridge, as well as. I was cycling in on a Sunday morning. You know, and people actually just would chat and he said, you know, just a bunch of guys here. Just, just like, and said, oh, you're going off to, you know, spot another child, are you? You know, just that sense that. And I had also had an encounter when I was chaplain, not at Cambridge University, but at the Anglia Ruskin, where um, somebody came to see me, and I sensed that there was somebody there. So they'd spent ages pacing up and down outside my door. It was a guy from Liverpool. Um, who's doing a course as a mature student. Anyway, he basically came to tell me about some abuse that he'd suffered as it happened at the hands of a, a Catholic priest in, in Liverpool and eventually I was able to help him talk about me. But he just needed to tell a priest, and I realized, although it happens I'm a different denomination, or whatever, that I suddenly realized that I could apologize. I mean, there might be more there, but that I could just personally look this guy in the eye and tell him how desperately sorry I was, and to say, on behalf of the church, which in some sense did that to him, even though he's you know, a rogue person. And he told me later that that was a turning point for him, that he heard that. And it was a really strange thing, you know, I wasn't present when that abuse happened in any way, but somehow because we are all one body, I, you know, it was tragically in some sense, you know, somebody at least appearing to be okay, a part of the body of Christ that did these terrible things to him. And somehow somebody in that representative role had to, had to speak them back. So, so and, and to apologize, which, which I did, but, um, so this became a sort of cry of pain, but it also became a hope, you know, that, that restore us and call us back to you um, by name. But I know that for some people, they think the very language of shepherd and shepherding is problematic. And I do actually understand the line of thought that says there is actually only one shepherd, which is, which is Christ. And that actually, you know, people called to leadership or, you know, of course, pastor means shepherd, you know, pastoral. Should, maybe we should just think of ourselves as fellow sheep, you know, kind of doing, you know, that maybe even that language is, is problematic. Um, 
uh, one of the best people I've ever read on, on the subject of what it means to speak of pastoral, pastoral offices or pastoral care is, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that the book of his pastoral care for the confessing church, you know, when they're under this extremist in, in um, Germany, where he talked about the danger that when you're helping somebody in the name of Christ and speaking his words, and for a moment, just for a moment, your words have become his to somebody and in mediating a great and redemptive and restorative power into somebody's soul. There is a terrible danger that they will mistake you for Christ or that they will terrify you or they'll put you on a pedestal, they'll think you're a magic person and, and, and that will be just a complete disaster because for everybody. You know, and what you're doing, and he puts it, he said, he said, your job as a, as a, as a Christian pastor, I think it's exactly what he says, you are to make the introduction. You are to put the wounded hand of the person you're visiting or helping into the wounded hand of Christ and then get out of the way. Step back. Let that trust that the... You know, if you overpass these, if you over-shepherd, as it were, you're actually betraying a lack of faith in the resurrection of Jesus. That if Jesus is risen, Jesus will get on with it. But you are privileged to introduce them, you know, you know. You rush over to, you know, it's like it's like Philip going and seeing Nathaniel and and saying, you know, we found Jesus, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And he Nathaniel goes, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know. And and he says, Come and see. Allow me to make the introduction. Then in fact, as you know, at that point, like Nathaniel and Jesus completely get each other totally. And you know, Philip hasn't seen half of it. You know, if Philip had kept butting and saying, and another person, just don't look at him, I just nothing I need to tell you about Jesus. It's, you know, it's been a disaster. So maybe there's there's that as well that we've overdone. We you know we've part of the, the shame and the power and the corruption and the terrible things has been to do with people assuming or a role or a mantle that was more than theirs and being corrupted by that. And yet people need to have an outward and visible sign of somebody that is going to care for them. And Need them, so it's a very delicate thing. Anyway, so that was what I did with the poem and kind of where I was coming on from. And I said, again, I get another sort of interesting thing. Now you've done a second one for this, haven't you? It's a different one. So let's let's hand over to to. to um, coming to life. Yeah. I was thinking of that psalm. Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, and let the King of glory enter. And I don't know what you think the King of glory would look like, but it wouldn't look like that, probably. It certainly wasn't what the Jewish people were expecting. Something so vulnerable, so frail, so small, something that would be sacrificed like a lamb. So here we have the ancient doors, and again we have the archetype sun, but God is outside in this painting. God is not in the church. 
And within the church, the table's fallen over. Perhaps that's a Bible on the floor, and there's a puddle of water. There's broken glass and daffodils. Is, is, the, is the sheep going to come in and be damaged? And there's a crucifix on the wall. I grew up as a, I've had a, a, a I'm very lucky to have had a very eclectic uh, religious input. I was brought up as a Catholic uh, in a convent boarding school. And then I went away from that and I was saved into the evangelical church where we were all like this all the time. Yeah. Yes. And uh, that didn't last very long, I have to say. I, I, uh, I moved on from there and then I, I, I joined uh, the Church of England only because it's a good church in our village. I don't think it matters, actually. But I'm full of symbols and there are a lot in here. And maybe you'll find your own language in this painting because I think I was just overwhelmed with things when I was painting this. I think maybe if you look at it yourself, you will find your own. Does, does, does anybody see anything there? Do you see anything and think, oh, that's very interesting, or oh, that means something to me? It's actually the table being knocked over seems to the church is But there is danger also in the broken glass. In the yeah. broken glass. Yes, it's broken glass. If you look at the painting itself, you'll see it there. Yeah. So this is broken. This is a broken glass vase. Maybe we could. Uh, can we sharpen the image up at all? Is that possible? It's sharper. Yes, in the painting. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there, yeah, that's it. That's it, yeah. There's also... I, I painted that as the Bible. It might not be the Bible. I mean, it doesn't matter what you, what yeah. I made. It's what you see. And it's always, again, revisioned by your seeing it. I thought it was interesting that the Bible was reflected. I thought it was important that the Bible should be reflected in a man-made table, in a gloss of, a, of paint. And of course, back up at the top, in my Catholic upbringing, I always thought Jesus was on the cross. He was always on the cross. In, my, in all the crucifixes, I saw Jesus was on the cross. But when I became an evangelical, you couldn't have Jesus on the cross because Jesus had, had risen from the dead and he was no longer on the cross. And so that was a very deliberate act of putting Jesus back on the cross, maybe saying that our what, the, 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 the terrible things we've done put him back on the cross. Right, thank you. Well, this is interesting for me because this is a different one from the one I originally saw when I wandered around to Linda's and um, she showed me some things. So this is yet another one. And I'll tell you the one thing that I take from this, just looking at it straight away that although the text and the poem is I am the Good Shepherd, the subtext, or the really deepest drawn thing, it seems to me in Linda's painting here, is actually the words of John the Baptist looking at Jesus, which is, Behold the Lamb of God. You could call this painting Eke Agnus Dei, there it is. 
and it's the tiny little lamb. Now, the reason why that's important to me is that when I've had to reflect on this further, on this whole shepherd, shepherding thing, and, you know, it's clear the Bible does call, you know, people that be shepherds, you know, with, with, is, for me, well, the paradox that he is the lamb of God as well as the shepherd is perfectly pointed <laughs> in that extraordinary one sentence in the book of Revelation, where after all this glorious, you can scarcely envision it stuff, you get this one sentence, which is like a piece of sort of stunning modern poetry. Yes. And the lamb upon the throne will be their shepherd. It actually brings the two things together. The lamb upon the th lamb throne shepherd, all together. The lamb upon the throne will be their shepherd. And what that means to me, at the very least, in understanding Christ as being born as a, is that we have a shepherd who knows what it's like to be a lamb. And that's the problem with all the bad shepherding and the heavy shepherding and the corrupt shepherding that's gone on, is the shepherds think they're different from the sheep. They don't understand. Whereas the lamb upon the throne will be their shepherd. If you want a really good shepherd, you want to make it a shepherd who is also somehow at the same time the weakest and most vulnerable person in the flock. That's the person who needs to be the shepherd. The lamb upon the throne will be the shepherd. And again, the throne, the throne in, 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 in the Israel of his time, Herod on his throne, was a million miles away from the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem who couldn't even go and take part in the rituals in Jerusalem because they were ritually unclean because they'd be looking after unclean sheep, sheep. And yet they're the first ones to see the lamb when he comes. And they bring him the lamb. So what I like about this is I love it that this is not a member, a stray, you know, this is not a stray member of the congregation that we need to, this is Jesus coming. But he's coming in the littlest and the weakest, so maybe it is also Jesus coming to our church as the four-year-old who's, who's kind of dancing around and causing chaos at the back of the church. That's where Jesus is. That's so, so this sense of Jesus coming in and looking and seeing the broken things and coming in. So I, I, I love that. what I like about this mainly is the scale. Like the tininess of the lamb. And that speaks to me if this is the light of the divine presence. It also speaks, as it were, of the divine diminuendo of though he was found in form equal to God, he did not cling to him, to himself, he took the form of seven. He came down from heaven. So there's something about that as well. Uh, which 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 I find um, and of course it does that that beautiful thing that I want to do somehow, which is to link with the previous so here is the door. I have the door. So I found that very helpful. Thank you. So um, before we we're going to break um, one one-ish, I want to move on to a, a third one in this session, just so we can go. So um, after that, we get. Um, the next one in John comes in chapter 11 when obviously I, I, in these little handouts sometimes I'm only giving you the verse I'm not giving you the context that the verse occurs in and of course John 11 is just one of the most 
harrowing and you know, beautiful but poignant. You know, it's the whole story of the death of Lazarus. It's the agony that Mary and Martha go through. It's that desperate, you know, thing that everybody who's been hurt and grieved would say, like, where were you then? If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then all this, you know, your brother will rise. Yeah, I know my brother will rise at the end of, uh, the end of time, the end of the cosmos. Great, thank you. You know, that's such a comfort to me now, isn't it? <laughs> you know. Uh, that's why the particular power of the present tense, the present continuous of ego, Amy, because that's the very mystery of the I am. You know, I am all these things. Right now, in the here and now, I am. So much of our religion is actually, if we're honest, constructed on the sentence, I was. It's just like going, looking back to the good, if only I'd lived in Bible times, it would have been great, you know, or if only we'd lived in the ages of miracle, or if only things happened now. Or even if we only we lived in the good old days in the church in the 50s or something, you know, when it was kind of this way, or it was full, or, you know, people went to Sunday school and paid attention, and whatever it is, you know, we're always looking for something, you know, way back when, you know. Or, we say, it'll finally work itself out in the end, you know, one day I'll get around to doing X or Y, and we'll, you know, get some, some omega point. Of course, he is Alpha and he is Omega, but he is also utterly present. So, it's her agony when she says, if only, you know, if you, and he says, I know you'll rise at the end of the day, but you know, what about now? And Jesus looks at him, at her, and says, I am the resurrection. I am that so I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. I was just voicing this for Mary and Martha. I was voicing it in a sense for all of them, for the Jews. How can you be the final resurrection? That resurrection hasn't happened yet. Our broken world is still bent on destruction. No sun can rise before that sun has set. Our faith looks back to Father Abraham and forward to the one who is to come. How can you speak as though he knew your name? How can you say before he was, I am? Begin in me and I will read your riddle and teach you truths my spirit will defend I am the end who meets you in the middle the new beginning hidden in the end I am the victory the end of strife I am the resurrection and the life I realised after I'd opened that that I'd accidentally borrowed from a really distinguished theologian without remembering it. Um, that exactly. Tom Wright, the New Testament commentator, N.T. Wright, who calls Jesus the end in the middle. He points out that the occurrence of the resurrection in the middle of history is a breaking into the middle of things at the end point of all things. And they at the end coming to meet us. So, so actually, best line in the poem, and I nicked it from someone else, you know. <laughs> I'm the end who meets you in the middle. Of course, in all of these, I'm playing with the word end in the sense of purpose and, and meaning, as well as end in finality. But I would think that is the case, and that all the time it's been him. So his I am comprehends everything. So 
Like when Coleridge says that, uh, that your imagination is a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. Eternal means beyond all time. So actually, for, for, for Coleridge at that point, no moment in creation is any further away, no moment in the chronology of time, as it were, is any further away from the Fons et Origo, the beginning of creation, than any other. Because he didn't make the world in time, he made it with time. So he's equally present in his creative act of uttering it. To every moment in time. But also, his creative act of completely renewing it. Behold, I make all things new. Death will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. All those promises, he are also present to him. So when you meet him and encounter him in a moment, you know, in meditation, in your soul or in the sacraments, um, you're encountering the beginning and the end. You're encountering the first joy of creation and the final joy of creation meeting you in the middle. And meeting you in the middle as somebody who totally shares your wounds and understands you know, it's extraordinary. One of the things that's most important for me about the story of the resurrection of Jesus is not simply that it happens suddenly in the middle of history, but that it doesn't obliterate the history that it happens in the middle of. It doesn't overwrite it or undervalue it, and that Jesus has his wounds still. We may say those wounds, you know, now visible but glorified, you know, gaze beyond those glorious scars, but the scars are still there. That he's saying everything, including all the hurts, is going to find its place and glory in the risen life. You know, and then as a sign of all of that, he raises Lazarus. You know, that the resurrection is kind of breaking in the middle. So those were some of the things that went on. Um, this form where, I don't know if you've noticed that these sonnets quite often fall into a sort of two parts, and there's eight lines and six lines. This is the kind of sonnet thing. Um, that's been going on for since uh, since uh, Petrarch really invented it. Um, so it's called the the octet and the sestet. Uh, you have eight lines and then you have six lines coming back. And the bit between them is called the volta or the turn. And sometimes often come, say one thing, you know, give it the full force, and then come back from another angle. And I began to find that this was really helpful to me in my prayer life. And, uh, I could just give Jesus everything with both barrels and say, what is this? But that then he were, you know, he's got six lines to come back at me and go, you know. And in my sequence of poems in there on the, on the um, two great commandments, I do that quite a lot. Except in the final one, I, Jesus interrupts me after four lines and goes, just shut up for a minute. <laughs> it all comes back. That's a form as well of dialogue that I, I took from George Herbert. So that's where I was with that. I mean, of course, it's a great mystery. How can I even begin to speak of it? I, you know, I'm a vicar, so I, I spend my time walking in front of the dead into a church. You know, the dead person carried behind me. I walk in front of them, and the very first words I speak as I go through that door are, I am the resurrection and the life. I proclaim it always in the midst of death. Yeah, in the midst of life, we are in death. But also, right in front of death is life, speaking it out. And, you know, that's the point of it. Linda, do you want to uh, tell us where you've got them? So I've got to run away. But this is my favorite.
just I'm astonished by. You've got to see this in the flesh. I think this is particularly the, the painting in the gold. Sometimes a painting just seems to happen. Um, in fact, Coleridge talks about this quite a lot, and, and Malcolm was reminded, told me about Coleridge that sometimes you know you have this great big work of art that you're working on, and you're busy thinking, oh, this is going to be a great painting, a great painting. But I'll just do this little quick one over here. I'll just have a little quick experiment over here with a bit of this and a bit of that, and that's what happened here. So I was just, I was just thinking, oh, maybe a quick angel, or and maybe I'll put Jesus up here and Abraham up here, and um, and there is the soldier again. Yeah, and I used the soldier from that painting in this painting. And actually, you see, you see, this is this is what you see in the flesh, and this is what's really happening. Yeah, just hold them together. Like So when, when, when we're in a terrible state and we think, oh, where are you, God? And, um, <laughs> I'm so far from you, Lord. This is what's really happening. This is what's really happening in that painting. And I think it, it's, this was completely subconscious. This completely didn't come out of my mind. This came out of some, somewhere else. And even... Even as I talk about it, I think, goodness, and those are all his friends behind him, perhaps. Those are all the ones he's, he's crying for. Saved, awake, alive, and held between Abraham and Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. Yeah, I, I was, it's funny because uh, when I went to see this, you know, Linda was really apologetic about this. She went like, oh, I was, she couldn't think about what this. So I just did this little thing on the side over here, like I said. I went, oh my goodness, that's it. You know, that really is it. And at least, of course, with it being Abraham and Christ, because this whole sequence of I Am stories began in chapter 8 with Before Abraham Was I Am, which is Abraham and I are in the same space together now, we're in the same moment. So there they are, and, and the others. Um, so I, I also find the central angel just so beautiful. I just think it's amazing. It's a very beautiful painting, um, but it's it's still giving me, you know, the reality of the sorrow. It's not, you know, I mean, it's like the book in Re uh, again in Revelation where it says, "And God shall wipe away every tear from their faces." Not that they won't cry them, or that God will sort of so wrap us in cotton wool that we never cry a tear, but that He will wipe away the tears, and He is able to wipe away the tears because He weeps them. He knows what that, that is to do. And again, in the same John 11, contains that shortest sentence in the scriptures, which is Jesus wept. Jesus wept, even knowing that this was coming, that this was resurrection. You know, that, do you know what I mean? We know that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. It's not that he didn't know about that joy, but that he also fully entered into this other thing. And that... Um, you know, it seems to me that a lot of what's going on in meditation, as I understand it at least, some of you guys will be deeper into this than me, is, the, is starting here and then allowing this to glimmer through at some point. Not to 
obscure or overwrite, but to illuminate from within this, if that makes sense. And it seemed to me that those, those two and, uh, do that really beautifully. And in a sense, that's also what I'm trying to do with poetry. I'm trying to provide this other, as it were, illumination of something that, that we already experience. There's all kinds of other things going on in there which, which I just really like and I, I like to explore it further. I also like the way the gold of the halos is kind of itself fragmentary and has stains and bits coming through and, you know, um, that also I find uh, really, really helpful. There's a danger in, in painting glory um, of sentimentality. There's a danger of it just being a little bit too much like a patient's strong greeting card, isn't it? And um, so how is that to be avoided? Some modern artists have gone now so afraid of that that they won't paint glory at all ever, that they just deal with the murderous and never with the marvellous. So, you know, there's a, you know, there's a great moment in Shane Matini's um, Nobel Prize acceptance speech where he says, I decided there was time for me to make room in my mind and imagination for the marvellous as well as the murderous. So the way to avoid sentimentality, but still to be true to glory, is not to forget the murderous in the midst of the marvellous, but actually to bring them together. And I think that, that happens really well in that. So, uh, thanks. I'm just going to um, finish this session, we've overrun a little bit, by reading um, those three poems again um, in sequence. <coughs> I am the door of the sheepfold. Not one that's gently hinged or deftly hung. Not like the ones you played at Joseph's place. Not like the well-oiled openings that swung so easily for pilots' practiced pace. Not like the ones that closed in Mary's face from house to house in brimming Bethlehem. Not like the one that no man may assail that waits your breaking in Jerusalem. Not one you may, but one you have become. Load-bearing, balancing, a weighted beam to bridge the gap, to bring us within reach of your high pasture, calling us by name. You lay your body down across the breach, yourself, the door that opens into heaven. When so much shepherding has gone so wrong, so many pastors hopelessly astray, the weak so often preyed on by the strong, so many bruised and broken on the way, the very name of shepherd seems besmeared. The fold and flock themselves are torn in half. The lambs we left to face all we have feared are caught between the wasters and the wolf. Good shepherd. Now your flock has need of you. One finds the fold and ninety-nine are lost out in the darkness and the icy dew and no one knows how long this night will last. Restore us. Call us back to you by name and by your life laid down. Redeem our shame. And then finally... 
I am the resurrection. How can you be the final resurrection? That resurrection hasn't happened yet. Our broken world is still bent on destruction. No sun can rise before that sunset. Our faith looks back to Father Abraham and forward to the one who is to come. How can you speak as though he knew your name? How can you say before he was, I am? Begin in me, and I will read your riddle. Teach you truths my spirit will defend. I am the end who meets you in the middle. The new beginning hidden in the end. I am the victory, the end of strife. I am the resurrection and the life. So many lines of that come out in that last painting of Linda's. Uh, just as we break for lunch, I'll say, um, this is Builder's Poetry in Prayer. We've said a lot of this about how these poems relate to prayer. But I hope you'll also see that they all are prayers, that they're simply addressed to Jesus. And they're giving Jesus a chance to speak back, and they're trying to do this work. Thank you for listening. We'll, 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 we'll.